Hi, everybody, and welcome to this podcast series on low-carbohydrate diets and diabetes. My name is Jan, and I will be your host today. Today's podcast is the first of a series of three podcasts discussing the impact of low-carbohydrate diet on people with diabetes. We'll discuss the benefits, disadvantages, current research, and dietary guidelines for the macronutrient carbohydrate. I'd like to introduce Amy Rush, who is the 2018 CDE of the Year in Western Australia and the Jan Baldwin CDE of the Year. Amy's passion for supporting people with type 1 diabetes began when her brother was diagnosed with diabetes at the age of seven. She wanted him to live the richest life possible and continues to wish this for all her patients. Amy understands the confusion, fear and loneliness of nighttime diabetes management and created the Diabetes Detective Program, which allows her to provide patients with feedback in real time using CGM. Patients share their data with Amy for a week and she offers them advice and solutions 24-7. Amy believes this is just one way technology can help the diabetes management to the next level. Amy is an accredited practicing dietitian and credential diabetes educator. And in her spare time, she creates rap song parodies with lyrics about type one. Her latest rap, The Real T1D, was a parody of Eminem's song, The Real Slim Shady, and it went viral. So hello, Amy, and uh, how are you today? Hi, Jan, good, thank you, yourself? Good. It's a, I think I said it's a bit cold and wet, but otherwise good. So thank you. Well, we might, we've got quite a lot to cover today, Amy, so I just I thought we might start with you already. Definitely. So today we're going to be discussing low-carbohydrate diets, and I wonder what is a low-carbohydrate diet? Yeah, so Jan, the simplest answer to this really is a low-carb diet is one that restricts carbohydrate consumption. So foods high in carbohydrate are significantly reduced and the lost dietary energy is replaced by an increased consumption of both proteins and fats. There's no in internationally certified level of carbohydrate intake that will define a low carbohydrate diet. But one that is commonly used is the 2015 Feynman definition, which classes a low carbohydrate diet as anything less than 130 grams per day and a very low carbohydrate diet is something around 20 to 50 grams per day. The popular keto diet is where carbohydrate intake is below 20 grams per day. And the focus is on burning fat as a fuel. So using ketones as the predominant energy source. So really the level of carbohydrate intake that someone chooses to follow will depend entirely on their ultimate goal. So for example, Someone with type 1 diabetes may find a reduced carbohydrate approach of perhaps half of their current intake, no matter, no matter where they lay already on the carb spectrum. Um, and a moderate protein intake may actually work best for them in terms of their blood glucose management. Whereas someone wishing to lose weight really quickly may drop their carbohydrate intake substantially to say sub 50 grams per day. Then you may have someone with insulin resistance who are wishing to avoid progression to type 2 diabetes and even insulin dependence, and they may go ahead and adopt a ketogenic diet to drastically improve their sensitivity. 
Thanks for that, Amy. Um, so to adhere to a low-carbohydrate diet, what foods would you need to reduce or even remove? Well, this will really depend on your desired level of carbohydrate intake. But as a first step, removing the obvious sources of what we call empty carbs is ideal. And by this, I mean high sugar, high starch, processed and packaged foods, such as fast food, baked goods, chips, confectionery. If these types of calorie dense nutrient deficit foods are making up the bulk of your diet, then removing these will certainly decrease your carbohydrate intake straight away. Then if you're looking to take this a step further, you need to start looking at removing the obvious sources of complex carbohydrates. So things such as breads, cereals, rice, pasta, noodles, couscous, quinoa. And there are many low carbohydrate options for these that you can switch out with. Then again, if you're looking to decrease further, the next step would be the low carb or the ketogenic category. And you would be needing to choose low carbohydrate alternatives for things such as fruit, milk and yogurt. And here the bulk of the carb will therefore be coming from your non-starchy vegetables, berries and other low carb fruits, and then other things such as nuts and condiments. So now that we've discussed some obvious sources of carbohydrates, are there some of the less obvious or hidden sources? Definitely. And this comes up with patients quite often. So anyone wishing to really lower their carbohydrate intake will need to consider those hidden sources. And a good example is sauces, sauces and gravies, in particular those that are in stir fries, curries, pastas and casserole type dishes. People will often remove the rice or potato or even switch it up for pasta switch up pasta for things like zucchini noodles but then they forget that the sauce or flavoring they're adding may have just as much carbohydrate in the salt in the form of sugar it is worth mentioning that milks and yogurts they're often forgotten sources of carbohydrate so natural yogurt has no added sugar and is approximately five percent carbs in comparison you could uh, your flavored yogurt could be anything from say 15 to 50 percent carbohydrate so taking this a step further, natural coconut yogurts contain even less, less carbohydrates. So they're around three to 4%. So what you're thinking about those missing sources again, will link back to your level of carbohydrate intake that you desire to reach. Okay, so I guess my next question is, are all carbohydrates created equal then? Well, I'd really explain this one in terms of how carbohydrates impact blood glucose levels. So no, not all carbohydrates will impact blood glucose levels in the same way. For many people, the first time they realise this is actually when they use a continuous glucose monitor or a flash glucose monitor and are able to really see how different foods impact their blood glucose levels. So the glycemic index of the carbohydrate will indicate its impact on the blood glucose level. Foods with a high glycemic index will cause a rapid increase and often a rapid decrease in blood glucose, while a food with a low glycemic index will lead to a slower, more prolonged rise in blood glucose levels. So generally speaking, if a food has a higher proportion of sugar, whether that's natural or added, it'll have a higher GI, and that's because the body doesn't need to do much to break down that carbohydrate. It is already in a partially digested form. 
On the other end, foods that have more fiber or more fat will generally have a lower glycemic index as the body needs to work harder to break this down, leading to a more stable um, and slower glucose release. Okay, so if we remove carbohydrate sources, what do we need to put back into the diet then? This is a really important question, Jan, and the difference between doing a low-carbohydrate diet effectively and ineffectively is whether or not you're replacing the carbohydrate with the right things and even more so enough of these things. So again, the focus here and the amounts are very individual and it will depend entirely on your reason for adapting to a lower-carbohydrate approach. So first, we would need to ensure adequate protein intake. There is a long list of reasons why protein is important. Protein is the main component of cells, second only to water, and it's essential to life. It's the amino acids from the protein digestion that are used to build and maintain skeletal and smooth muscle, collagen for strength and structure, hemoglobin, hormones, enzymes that allow us to digest food and make energy, as well as playing an important role in our immune function. So we need to ensure at least adequate protein Requirements will differ based on gender, age and activity level, but meeting them is actually fairly easy for the majority of the Australian population. As a bonus, the obvious sources of protein such as meat, poultry, seafood, eggs and cheeses are all carbohydrate free. After a carbohydrate and protein target have been considered, the remainder or the remaining energy requirement will be filled with fat. And that's not to say that fat's an afterthought by any means. In fact, it's a super efficient energy source that provides us with essential fatty acids and those that we can only get from dietary sources. And these are involved in immunity, clotting and healing. Fat also plays at the role of insulation and organ protection for the body. It's the main component of all cell membranes and makes it possible for us to absorb the fat-soluble vitamins from the food that we eat. So fat plays just as an important role as protein in, in, um, in, in replacing that, those sources. Okay, so Amy, we know carbohydrates are the primary energy source for the body and specifically the brain. So are carbohydrates essential? Yeah, it is commonly thought that carbohydrates are the primary energy source for the brain and it certainly will be true for those whose predominant macronutrient is carbohydrate. Remembering that glucose is the byproduct of carbohydrate breakdown, if glucose is available, the body will readily use it as an energy source. However, the body is really adaptable and it is able to use an alternative fuel source if the glucose intake decreases and it's no longer so freely available. For example, the body is able to break down excess protein into glucose, a process called gluconeogenesis. If carbohydrate intake is significantly lowered, the body can actually switch its primary fuel from glucose to ketones, and ketones are the byproduct of fatty acid breakdown. We'll talk more about this in a later podcast, but it's important to point out here that the body can efficiently break down ingested fatty acids into ketones, which can then be used by the body as the primary fuel source. So in the nutrient reference guidelines for Australia and New Zealand, there is no recommended requirement for carbohydrate for people over the age of 12 months. And the NHMRC cite that the lack of an RDI for total carbs is no reflection on its value as a key component of the diet, but it's the type of carbs consumed that is paramount in terms of health outcome. And I think the latter part is really important. Low carb isn't necessarily about no carb, 
It's about reducing carbohydrate and choosing to eat carbohydrates that are most nutrient dense. So the most common reaction to a low carbohydrate diet is the concerns around inadequate nutrient intake, when in fact, nutrient intake generally improves. And we'll discuss this again in a further podcast, but if listeners are interested, I would point them to an article that I co-authored in 2018 that was published in the BMJ Open, titled Assessing the Nutrient Intake of a Low-Carbohydrate, High-Fat Diet, a Hypothetical Case Study Design. And in this study, we looked at four different low-carbohydrate dietary approaches and concluded that despite macronutrient proportions not aligning with the current national dietary guidelines, a well-planned low-carbohydrate diet can actually be considered micronutrient replete. Thanks for that, Amy. What does some of the current literature suggest then about low-carbohydrate diets in people with diabetes? Well, the emerging research is very positive for low-carb diets in the management of diabetes, Jan. Currently, the evidence to support this dietary approach in type 2 is strong, but it's really starting to build momentum for type 1 as well. Granted, these studies so far are smaller, short-term studies, and we do need larger, long-term, randomised controlled trials with hard endpoints, not just surrogate markers, but what we're seeing is really exciting. A recent 2017 systematic review and meta-analysis showed that low to moderate carbohydrate diets have greater effect on glycemic control in type 2 diabetes compared with high carbohydrate diets in the first year of intervention. The greater the carbohydrate restriction, the greater the glucose lowering. And that's a relationship that had not been demonstrated earlier. So what's important to note here is the impact on overall health of improving HbA1c. We know the negative impact of long-term high blood glucose levels, so the ability to improve them with dietary change is really game-changing. When it comes to type 1, evidence is beginning to emerge, and I want to draw your attention to a 2018 study, which was published in the Journal of Pediatrics. It was an analysis of the diabetes management of a group of 316 children and adults, not just kids, with type 1 diabetes, eating a very low-carbohydrate diet. Their mean carb intake was about 36 grams per day. And the study looked at change in HbA1c after commencement of the diet. It looked at lipids, growth, and any adverse events. So just straight up, the results, results showed that the mean HbA1c in this group was 5.67. The participants had a low triglyceride and high HDL cholesterol and LDL levels. This is consistent with the known effects of low-carb diets that we know of. High HD, uh, sorry, high low-density um, lipoprotein or low-density cholesterol is long considered a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. However, research suggests that a high LDL associated with low triglycerides, low triglycerides may in fact reflect large buoyant lipoprotein particles, which really pose a lower risk. And further to this, the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial cohort of 1,441 adolescents and young adults showed that HbA1c had the largest effect on cardiovascular risk, followed by triglycerides and LDL. Another important thing to note was the very low ratio of triglycerides to HDL of 1 to 1, which we know is beneficial in cardiometabolic health. So this study also looked at growth, which is an, uh, an area of question. And it was assessed by looking at the children's height data, which was self-reported and both medical provider corroborated. 
The participant reported current mean height was modest, modestly above average for age and sex. The provider reported data on height over time showed a marginal decrease in height standard deviation since diabetes diagnosis. But the researchers hypothesized that the growth deceleration may have either preceded or occurred during the diet, but that the rate of deceleration was actually comparable to the general decreases in height standard deviations seen upon diagnosis in all children with type one, despite their carbohydrate intake. The study reports that the data did not reveal any adverse effect of a low carb diet on growth, but that additional research is certainly warranted. In terms of adverse outcomes in this study, the two big concerns for low carb are hypoglycemia and DKA events. In this particular study, of the 316 participants, only seven, which was 2%, reported diabetes-related hospitalizations in the previous year, and only four or 1% were for DKA, and two or 1% were for hypoglycemia. So Amy, as a dietitian, do you recommend a low-carbohydrate diet to all patients, or are there times when you would recommend other carbohydrate-focused diets, for example, carbohydrate-consistent or carbohydrate-counting with appropriate insulin coverages? So no and yes. No, I certainly wouldn't recommend a low-carb diet to all patients. And yes, there are times where I would recommend other carb-focused diets. Adopting a low-carbohydrate diet, just like any diet, is a very personal decision. Any person wish, wishing to follow any type of diet should get personalized advice. As we have just discussed, meeting your body's energy needs is really important. Even people wanting to lose weight will still need to meet a certain level of caloric needs. I do believe that the low carbohydrate diet in some capacity will help most people with diabetes to better manage their blood glucose levels. However, there will be a cohort of these people for whom the diet may not be optimal and this would be based on other complicating comorbidities that they may have. Thanks for that, Amy. I'm glad we got that around the right way. <laughs> so for patients on insulin who are transitioning to a low-carb diet, do you recommend changing the frequency of blood glucose monitoring or changing the dose of insulin when decreasing their intake of carbohydrate? Yes, this is when we must discuss insulin and the fact that bolus or meal insulin requir requirements are obviously going to decrease with a decreased carbohydrate intake. And this seems obvious, but it can also be strange to a patient who is used to bolusing large amounts of rapid acting insulin at meals. The person's current insulin regimen is really important here. For example, if there's someone who is on set meal dosages, we would need to take a really big step back and focus a lot more on carbohydrate counting first before going any further. Whereas pumpers or those on flexible MGI who are more equipped at using ratios, they'll catch on quite quickly and we can move forward a bit quicker. It's also important to chat here about long-term insulin changes. If the diet is to bring about weight loss, then overall insulin needs are likely going to decrease. Alterations to basal rates, carb ratios and sensitivity factors generally occur over the coming months as well. This highlights the importance of getting help from your healthcare professional who is well versed in the area of low carbohydrate dietary management for insulin dependent diabetes. In terms of blood glucose monitoring, yes, it's advised that patients definitely increase the amount of blood glucose monitoring they are doing. CGM or flash glucose monitoring is really handy in the early stages 
However, increased finger prick testing can suffice, but in any opportunity I can, I will put patients on my own continuous glucose monitoring devices in those early days. Thanks for that, Amy. So what are the national guidelines or recommendations for carbohydrate for people with diabetes? So the long-standing recommendation is that people with diabetes follow the same healthy diet recommend to all Australians. However, in 2018, Diabetes Australia released a position statement on low-carbohydrate diets in the management of diabetes. And the points to note from this position statement were, or are, that Diabetes Australia does not promote or encourage any single diabetes diet. Every person with diabetes needs an individual approach to diet. People with type 1 diabetes following a low-carbohydrate approach should do so in consultation with their diabetes healthcare team and that they should seek help from an accredited practicing dietitian experienced in diabetes management. They also note that monitoring blood glucose levels and talking to their doctor about the need to adjust their diabetes medication, medication to reduce the risk of hypoglycemia is important. So as you can see, the tides are changing around diabetes and diet, and this is really exciting. Thanks for that, Amy. Um, and what sort of patient resources or education materials do you use while teaching patients about carb sources and carb counting then? There are a lot of resources out there online and many come from the major hospitals and diabetes centres. In my practice, I really like to create my own educational materials and I also like to do a lot of hands-on work, playing with real food, weighing and measuring the types of foods and portions that the individual actually consumes. And here at the Type 1 Diabetes Family Centre, we have actually just developed and are very soon about to release and launch our very own CyberCarbs course, which is an online carbohydrate counting course for both people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes and for health professionals. So check out our website for more information about that and watch this space because it will be very useful for any diabetes educators, dietitians to use themselves to upskill in carbohydrate counting, but to also offer to their patients to do, um, to upskill themselves in carbohydrate counting. Thank you so much again, uh, Amy, for your time today. It really has been great to talk to you. I'm sure this podcast has inspired our listeners to hopefully start thinking about carbohydrates in a whole new light. And I just wonder, we've covered a lot of information. If you've got perhaps three key points from today's podcast on low-carb diets and diabetes for us. Yeah, okay. So I think firstly would be what is your what is your goal? So every person um, looking to do a low carbohydrate approach should really sit back and think, what is my end point here and what do I want to get out of it? And then next point would then lead into don't do it alone. So going to somebody, particularly a dietitian who has um, experience working with people with diabetes and discussing with them, this is my end point here, what kind of level of carbohydrate intake should I be looking at? And then the third one would be is that be mindful that your insulin requirements or in the case of um, people on oral medications, these are going to change. So working together with your healthcare team, your diabetes educators, your endocrinologists to look at your insulin or oral medication needs as your diet changes. 
Thank you, Amy, once again. And thank you to everyone out there for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you have any questions, please feel free to email them to education at adea.com.au. And if you haven't already done so, please feel free to check out Amy's uh, rap video parodies on YouTube. So until next time, a big thank you. Bye. Thank you, Jen.